or not? <laughs> we are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. This is The Truth Perspective. It is something like July 18th, 2015, depending on which calendar you use. Um, It's probably different for some people and species, but that's the day today. And we're all in the studio. We've all got our smoke slit and our tea hot, and we're ready to rip in to some controversial topics today. I am your host for today, Harrison Cayley. With me, as always, is Elon Martin. Hi, everybody. And almost as always, recently as always, decided it was Shane LeChance and Carolyn McGallum. Hello, everybody. Hi. Today we're going to be talking about the myth of the myth of the psychopath. Because, well, the trend has been going on for the last several years, but um, just in the last month or so, there have been a few articles um, that have come out, you know, on popular psychology websites or just, um, you know, any kind of mainstream-ish magazine or newspaper reporting on various books that have been published recently saying essentially that either psychopaths don't exist or, yeah, they exist, but they're not so bad. Apologetics. Yeah. So we're going to get into that because we think it is particularly odious and misleading. And when you actually get into it, pretty disgusting. So let's just start out. Do we want to Let's start out with the article called The Myth of the Psychopath. So this is an article published in the Pacific Standard earlier this month, July 9th, written by Peter Vigneron or Vigneron or Vigneron or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but that's all right. And it is uh, just a pretty bad, bad piece of journalism on this guy or these people. Um, they've written a book called The Myth of the Born Criminal. It's by two Canadian psychologists, Stephanie Griffiths and Michael Moran, or maybe Moron might be their correct pronunciation of that one. Ooh. And also a criminologist, Jarko Jalava. Um, he actually had a star appearance in Star Wars. That Jar Jar Brinks? Yeah. Uh, it's a distant cousin. He's a half like Jar Jar species and half Jabba the Hutt species. That makes sense. Jarko Jalava. So, so they uh, they wrote this book, Myth of the Born Criminal. In the article starts out this guy's talking about a story um, from his personal life. He had a, a friend that he'd met, um, uh, a Kenyan, and then went to Kenya, and this guy kind of showed him around the place, and 
demonstrated some strange behaviors that this guy kind of looked back or kind of realized over time and then in retrospect looked back and said, oh, was this guy a psychopath? So this guy was kind of known as a liar and he'd always show up late and have really outrageous excuses for not being there. And some other... he would disappear when it was given to him for yes, and uses pe- and it never happened. People told him not to trust him and kind of like uh, rolled their eyes at the mention of his name because he was kind of known as a a shady character and, you know, just not the kind of guy that you want to hang out with. And so he says that eventually he, um, the the journalist guy, the guy writing this article, that he wondered afterwards, oh, maybe this guy was a psychopath. So he looked into it and uh, looked up psychopaths and saw the, the characteristics, you know, from the PCLR, the Psychopathy Checklist by Robert Hare, and said, oh, yeah, this guy kind of sounds like a psychopath. Um, but then... He had a you know a great conversion to um, to realize that maybe he was wrong, and well, first of all, yeah, maybe he's wrong because this guy. I mean, you can't make a diagnosis on a dime like that and expect to be accurate. So of course, there's going to be doubts if this guy was actually a psychopath. We'll get he gets into that in the end of his article, but but moving on. So he's writing this article about this this recent book, Myth of the Born Criminal. And um, these people that wrote it, they say that psychopathy, this is paraphrasing, psychopathy is a a flawed and ill-defined concept, largely unsupported by the neuroimaging data its proponents often cite. Unlike discrete psychological disorders such as schizophrenia or depression, the authors argue, psychopathy is a disorder sustained by rhetoric rather than by science. Psychopath is just a strong word for a deviant, in the same way that jerk describes someone you don't like but reveals little about that person's psychology. This is a quote from them. They say, the term jerk does not constitute or imply a real thing. It is simply a linguistic convention for displaying moral disapproval. That's the end quote. To the extent psychopaths explain anything, they serve to highlight society's fears and neuroses and allow us to rationalize and remove ourselves from the tendency toward evil, from the human tendency toward evil. So it's just all a projection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that wraps it up. It's, it's really disturbing. I mean, you know, there's this whole science on psychopathy, uh, you know, all this literature, all these case studies, and, you know, are these authors, like, just completely ignorant of that? Um, no, because like they're saying that uh, that there's new that they have different uh, neuroimaging uh, data, but you know, uh, you know, hair has gone into to this, and you know, so so many others, and it's just really bizarre that um, yeah, suddenly they they don't these creatures don't exist. Yeah, well, the fact that you know, hair produced hundreds of MRI images testing them on people who were identical paths that show really clear, clear differences in the way they process or don't process the, you know, different emotional situations and their reactions to them. And, and to just dismiss all of that out of hand is just like saying, oh, it's just like anecdotal folklore. It's bizarre. Well, that paragraph itself is pretty embarrassing like, to read because there's just so many things wrong with it. It's... I'll get into a couple of them. So first of all, they can, they say it's not a discrete disorder like like uh, schizophrenia or depression. Well, obviously, even if you read the descriptions of psychopathy, it 
it, it's not even comparable. Like, oh, oh, I had a little bit of psychopathy last year, you know, and I got over it though. It's, it's the, med, like, the meds really helped. Yeah, it's that's it's comparing two different categories. So yeah, on the one hand, they're right. It isn't a it isn't something like depression or schizophrenia, and no one said it is. And but to say that that a, um, a so-called disorder like depression, depression isn't a, a disorder. Um, to say that they're um, different, well, yeah, they're different because there's, they're different. But yeah, okay, well, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's like they're just they're trying to compare something that is in some cases completely innate mm -hmm. to something that is a, a phase that can come and go. Mm -hmm. You know, a psychopath behaves like a psychopath. Whereas schizophrenia can go into remission, depression mm -hmm. can be gotten over, but the yeah, apples and oranges totally. Yeah, conflating them is really, really kind of not kosher. So <laughs> there's yeah, there's these you know there's there's disorders, there's mental disorders, mental illness, and then there's personality disorders which which are pervasive. They're 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 permanent and you know they they there's no there's not really you know any treatment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the scary things um, that we see, you know, in this article, um, but also others, is that, you know, there's there's this idea that uh, psychopathy can exist on the spectrum, and you know, yeah, you can have a little bit of psychopathy. Um, that's that's what uh, uh, Dutton kind of promotes. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get into some of his stuff in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's it's like this. There's this idea that yeah, you can you can kind of take some pieces of psychopathy and um, you know use them however you like, blah blah blah. And it's just total nonsense. Yeah. Well, the thing that was really interesting is, is how much he's brushing aside a solid science, but also the idea that the local social network that had evaluated this person he was dealing with in Canada, in you know, in Kenya. Like the the consensus of everybody around this man is that he was bad news, mm -hmm. and he just seemed to go, well, you know, maybe not, and uh, and he was basically brushing aside his own experience. Well, and th that's the funny thing is that these guys use they use the word jerk as an example for why psychopath is not a good word. Well, on the one hand, they've got a point. So I mean, someone can act like a jerk and say, oh, that guy's such a jerk. It doesn't mean he's a psychopath. And doesn't mean he's a jerk with a capital J. Mm -hmm. He might just have been in a bad mood, or something may have been affecting him at that moment to make him act in that way. It might not be a pervasive personality trait. And so, in that sense, what this guy's writing about is kind of right, because you shouldn't come to snap judgments about something like this. It takes a lot of observation and data to be able to see if someone is fundamentally a psychopath or not. Mm -hmm. But the the thing is, why do we have a word like jerk? Well, I think it's because some people really are jerks, like they are psychopaths, and that's just one of the words that we've come to use, this linguistic contrivance that we've come to use. It's a colloquial to describe these people. It's a layman's term. Yeah. Without, you know, but it's it's born of experience. It's born of observation. And, and uh, you know, they're, just because it's a social consensus doesn't mean it's invalid. Exactly. You know. They they also associated uh, psychopathy with uh, this degenerate theory, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of based in you know this idea that people can have this faulty genetic lineage, and you know it's kind of you know uh, the Nazis used part of that, and you know there's this association in there that really doesn't connect. Um, there there is 
there is data, lots of data about being a genetic um, you know, uh, condition. I, yeah, I'm hesitant to call it a disorder too because it's it's a condition. You know, it's not something that. Well, even that we can get into the genetics a bit, but uh, go on. We'll do that well, later. So, so um, yeah, there's this association with this theory, and you know, really, it, it's it's they're two very separate things, and you know, his uh, or the the book's uh, thesis is that you know once a degenerate theory you know fell out of favor. Then there was this upsurge in, in um, uh, psychopathy research, which you know Cleckley uh, really promoted uh, at the mid '40s. What was it? Just just about this a second longer. What was the name of the guy, the doctor, who was doing studies on psychopaths, and mixed in with all of these MRIs he was taking was his own. Yeah. And he... Ronson. Yeah. No, no, no. No, 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 no. no. James Fallon. Fallon. Yeah. Right, because... And that made him a proponent of the genetics. Yeah. The only thing that saved me from being a, a truly classic jerk was the fact that he he serendipitously had almost a perfect upbringing. But even his own relatives would describe actions and, and decisions yeah. he would make, and, and he had to look back at them and go, yeah. Yeah, that that's what a psychopath would do. Yeah, the family was like, "Oh, yeah, we're not really too surprised that he's a psychopath." So, <laughs> well, okay, yeah, we'll get into him too right, later yeah, on. Some articles on him. There's well. a, that's a, that's an interesting case um, that is used by Dutton, uh, Kevin Dutton, in in ways in which it probably shouldn't be used, mm-hmm. and to say things that probably shouldn't be said, or just come to wrong conclusions. But back to the the moral derangement thing. I mean, psychopaths used to be called like morally insane. And so that's that whole way of looking at things. First of all, you've got the the hereditary thing of you've just got these bad, bad lines of blood and that just makes a degenerate race. And of course that's way too overly simplistic to actually describe anything accurate about how heredity or, or um, you know, personality develops anyways. But the whole, uh, but the, the moral aspect has also gone out of favor, but I think for different reasons. It too is seen as unscientific, but it's only been seen as unscientific because of the totally materialistic framework that's going on here. So I think there's actually a lot of um, insight to be gained from looking at psychopathy from a moral perspective. And really psychopaths are morally insane because, well, first of all, morals or values are, are something that are real. They're not material, materially real, but when you get into um, aspects of philosophy and theology, I mean, the, I think that you can't deny as a moral component to the universe, even if it's non-materialistic. Mm-hmm. But so it's it's taboo to to say anything about morals in psychology because morals don't exist, just like purposes and aims don't really exist. It's just our electrons bumping into each other that uh, makes us do things. And so. Um, by cutting that off, yeah, sure, the, some of the foundations of the theory are cut off, but that doesn't say anything about whether psychopathy is real or not or, where, or what its nature is. That just shows the trends, the degenerate trends of modern science to, with their inability to see what's actually going on, uh, particularly in psychology in this instance. So um, because when you look at psychopaths and the way they operate and what their inner landscape is probably really like, they do not have any 
moral compass. And what I mean by that is that there is nothing outside of themselves that is more important to them than themselves. So their moral compass is really their own self-interest. Yeah. What do I want? This is what I want, and I want it now, and nothing's going to stop me from getting it, and I'm just going to be really clever about the way in which I go about getting it. And so, um, so yeah, psychopaths are morally insane and uh, morally deranged and uh, amoral, and they just don't. The thing is, is there is this fundamental difference between psychopaths and non-psychopaths in the sense that there is something lacking in a psychopath. They have they they don't have the ability to experience certain things, and this is even accepted um, by this guy in his article. Um, so he has a pretty good description of psychopathy in the beginning of the article. He says, psychopaths are real and relatively common, and some researchers have estimated this, that as much as 1% of the world's population are psychopaths. They are unable to feel the full range of normal human emotions, especially compassion and empathy. They're often violent, and because they're ruthless, they may be overrepresented at the upper levels of business and government. How can he go off from there? Yeah. So well. <laughs> and I think he's kind of like positing what the general consensus yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I think his editor probably just said, you have to write an article on this book. And so he tried to get into it and then just uh, didn't really think about it too much mm-hmm. um, and didn't end up seeing you know, how much he embarrassed himself by what he did say. Because um, on, just on the topic of the violence thing, so he says psychopaths are often violent. Well, um, first of all, we can't, we can't really say with too much accuracy if often is the right the, the right descriptor for that because we really don't know 100% how many psychopaths actually exist in the general population. Just on just because of the nature of the research done on psychopathy and the fact that most psychopaths researched are the violent ones. So of course the statistics are going to be skewed in the direction of violent psychopaths. We're not going to have an idea of the exact amount of how many nonviolent psychopaths there are. So right there, it's um, you know you're going down a, a false trail by accepting that as one of your you know prime assumptions about the nature of psychopathy because that, that is unknown at this point. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And with with the directions that psychopathy is research has gone in, it looks like there. And he gets into this you know, later on in the article and kind of takes it in a totally off-the-wall direction, but um, the more different areas are researched and the, the influence of psycho- psychopaths in different areas, like you mentioned, in business or politics or Wall Street or whatever, um, there's this picture coming up about the corporate psychopath or the political psychopath who is nonviolent and who is a professional and able to function in the world to, to, the, to a degree that they, they are successful. And, of course, Dutton gets into this stuff as well. But... Um, to, there's this focus on on violence that says that uh, well, it's kind of funny because on the one hand, all these articles about psychopaths from this point of view, they say, oh, you know, psychopaths are just they're not like necessarily like um, Hannibal Lecter or you know Ted Bundy. They're not all like that. And then proceeding, you know, as you proceed through the article to read it, they still use that assumption about psycho- psychopaths that these are the full-blown psychopaths and this is what it really looks. So they acknowledge that it's kind of a myth, and then they assume that myth for the rest of the article, which just shows that they haven't really thought about it. Or and I just I just think that they're 
they're just you know paid to write these articles and they don't have really have any idea of what they're doing, mm-hmm. or they do and they've got an agenda like I think that Kevin Dutton does, and um, mm-hmm. that's just a, that's a whole other uh, topic. Oh, it's interesting because uh, Sat has been covering psychopathy for you know I'd say over uh, ten years. And you know, it's been really fascinating to see the the developments uh, over this you know, past decade uh, regarding you know, all these different uh, areas and uh, topics and you know, just being explored. Um, and you know, while the mainstream you know does cover uh, bits and pieces of psychopathy, uh, occasionally we'll even get into the business aspect or the political aspect. Uh, we really don't see the uh, the parts where they're talking about like the actual influence of psychopathy over over groups. You know, it's it's kind of like studying a bug, and it's a really interesting bug without looking at it in the larger ecology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I think the other component of this is, you know, how do we define violence? Uh, do we measure violence by you know the act of a uh, you know someone shooting and killing or remaining somebody? Uh, is there another measure of violence that's inflicted um, economically? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there uh, another kind of um, outgrowth of, of violence and uh, negative detrimental effects on people in society that that we haven't yet qualified or quantified? Well, you look that at, that mm-hmm. is just as much a result of uh, psycho- psychopathic thinking as someone committing a murder. Well, you, you look at uh, these corporate raiders, and the guy's name just flew out of my head, but there was a guy who took over a company called Sunbeam. They uh, they uh, do small you know small appliances, gadgets, and things like that. And he he had a reputation calling going in. They called him like Captain Axe or something like that. And he he would be just ruthless. He just took the company in, parted out the bits he didn't want, kept the bits he did want, cut the workforce by like a third. And for him, it was all about the profit, all about making a thing, and and no concept, no consideration for the misery that he was inflicting on thousands of people. They were just expendable numbers on a page because they didn't suit his agenda. Off they went. Well, that kind of reminds me of a story about um, Lee Iacocca and I think Chrysler, mm-hmm. uh, the huge car company in the late 60s. You had um, you had them producing this car called the Ford Pinto. And um, there was some kind of mechanical defect to it. It blew up. It blew up on on point of contact. And uh, the lawyers and uh, the head honchos at Chrysler figured out that to recall each of these cars and to replace the piece of mechanics would cost about three or four bucks a car. But then they, they did the math, and they figured that it would actually cost them less money if they settled uh, out of court um, or in court with lawsuits for wrongful death. So instead of you know reproducing or fixing this three or four dollar uh, piece of mechanics in the car, they decided to um, allow all these people to die, of which there were many, in car accidents because of their faulty engineering. And whoever ended up suing them and, and getting some money, you know, that was less expensive. So anyway, we, we digress a little bit, but uh, but that's that's a form of violence. It is absolutely. And as these uh, these authors point out, 
at first they say that uh, in the 90s kind of psychopathy or late 80s or yeah, well, 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think they were saying the 90s. That uh, psychopathy kind of became uh, a household word and it was um, invoked to explain ser- serial killing. So we had these serial killers and that was the image of the psychopath. So it was basically a violent phenomenon. And that then, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, then all of a sudden we had the Internet age and that transformed society. So the diag- the, the diagnosis was now um, used to kind of expanded to the to the digital realm and the fear of internet predators and then after that in the 2000s late 2000s we had the the financial crisis 2008 and all of a sudden psychopathy was used to explain this and so they say that this is uh this is obviously a sign uh that psychopathy just has a quote you know adjustable adjustable portfolio end quote and so that um psychological disorders are supposed to exist independent of culture but obviously this is psychopathy because the definitions and diagnoses have changed. It's obviously just a, a fundex, uh, a function as an index of generational fears. So, you know, first we're afraid of ser- serial killers, and then we're afraid of, of online predators, and then we're afraid of financial uh, psychopaths or the, the financial baddies, the evil bankers that are just out to get us and don't care about our savings and will just steal everything from us. And so this is, it's just totally a cultural phenomenon that we're just projecting our fears of, of what's going on onto this, this murky label of psychopath, which is just total hogwash. Um, did, I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Did, he's com- completely invalid there because just about every culture in the world has a concept of this kind of person. Um, you know, even even people, some anthropologists went up and, and talked to the Inuit um, when they were first, you know, being studied, and the they he, they have a term for somebody who doesn't do their share of the hunting, you know, sleeps with your wife while you're out hunting, and you know, just generally doesn't share. That's their big thing. Everything is shared, and these are people who would keep, you know, whatever they got for themselves. And they had a specific term for this type of person. And he said, well, how do you deal with them? He says, well, we'd all go out hunting, and, you know, when nobody was looking, somebody would push them off an ice floe. And that was just their way of handling these people who were so detrimental to the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Well, on on that passage you just read, Harrison, I mean, it it seems completely lost on the author that, you know, instead of uh, societies kind of growing a larger conception of what mm-hmm. psychopath, you know, psychopathy is, and 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 what its deleterious effects are, and what forms they take, you know, again, it's it's like you said, there's this projection, uh, you know, this kind of um, appropriation of the of the use of the word psychopath to, uh, you know, to describe certain things that aren't really quite there when, of course, uh, there is an objective problem that we're seeing many different facets of. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there is a greater understanding that that seems to be undercut with this article. And I think Mm -hmm. that's kind of um, the point of looking at the way people are are describing and uh, defining psychopathy Mm -hmm. these days because they're misleading us. Yeah, this this idea that our our image of psychopathy changes as we experience these new things that are that make us scared. It, it's just so juvenile. I mean, did these people, these so-called researchers, not consider that perhaps 
there is this thing called psychopathy and that these psychopaths exist in all these different areas and that, well, two things. First of all, that they may be just researchers weren't aware of the scope of the phenomenon at first, so they were focusing on serial killers, which is an oversimplification, but let's just go with it. So, you know, everyone thought that only serial killers were psychopaths. Well, first of all, maybe they were just wrong. Maybe there were psychopaths all over the place and they just weren't aware of it. And then as we get these crises and these different fears that come about, these are not just our definitions changing according to how society changes. This is society changing because of the influence of these people and these psychopaths actually taking advantage of these changes and these these opportunities. So you have this you have this financial crisis that happens as a result of these people's actions and that reveals kind of the hand behind the curtain so you realize that oh, you know, the if if we look at what happens, that kind of explains it. So the reason this has happened is because these guys had this personality type and they were doing all these things that we didn't know about and just robbing people and engaging in all sorts of criminal activity. And oh, and the explanation for that is that they're psychopaths. I mean, that's the conclusion that one should probably come to. Well, you, you could say that it's not... Well, first of all, culture doesn't develop a fear without at least some seed event. Exactly. And then it's not cult, culture projecting this idea to explain itself. You could just say the psychopaths are, the psychopaths are adapting mm-hmm. culturally as each new niche to to exploit has opened up they're just widening their activities it would kind of or yeah and it's it, it is very juvenile like you were saying uh, harrison that this idea that you can't change your idea or your conception of something like there's no development there mm-hmm. that in itself is is a very uh, pathological you know way of looking at the world mm-hmm. that you can't make uh your understanding fuller you know that's it's it's uh it's this idea like it's it's an politics all the time mm-hmm. oh you know you can't you can't be a flip-flopper you can't change your you know your thinking you know, if you change your thinking then then you're some kind of a uh, delinquent well it would kind of be like um if we used an example from schizophrenia well first of all one of the examples that these guys gave about the the diagnosis of psychopathy changing was the rise of the digital age and these online predators and so Okay, so before the digital age, there was no digital age, so there were no online predators. All of a sudden, we have the Internet, and these these new fears arise. Now, there, even 100 years ago, or let's even go back 200 years, there wasn't, like, CIA surveillance, for example. I mean, the, the technology wasn't there. The concept wasn't there. So it would be kind of like saying that schizophrenia is just a totally culturally created hallucination or disease because well um these guys are saying that that uh that the CIA is spying on them and beaming stuff in their head you know if you had a, a paranoid uh, schizophrenic with these types of hallucinations oh well you know they didn't say that before so it must just be this culturally created phenomenon because they're saying things that they're saying we, we never we've never seen these hallucinations before where did this come from it's like saying it's like saying paranoia never existed but if you want to talk about exploiting niches uh, there was a, I read a really interesting article once about when the telegraph became common and cheap to use. It was like the, an, it was like a, a nascent version of the internet. People were making friends, they were communicating, they were conducting affairs, mm-hmm. and they were beast by mm-hmm. telegraph. Mm-hmm. 
so you know it's 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 like it's, it's like as it's another niche for them to explore so so you instead of scamming your neighbors you could scam some you know, somebody at the other end of the country mm-hmm. and this is just it's just basically gotten easier yeah so basically in some psychopaths adapt as society adapts because there are new ways to exploit people there are new ways to get what they want what a thought i know <laughs> i mean is it is it that difficult to to think about it in those terms the psychopaths who, if you read the descriptions, like this guy's obviously at least familiar with, uh, well, all these people are familiar with like Robert Hare's work and Cleckley's and just the, the vast other literature out there, because there's a ton of it, that the description of psychopaths is that they are mimics, they're liars, they put on a mask of sanity, they adapt to a situation, they present an image to you, a facade that is designed to fool you. They are, they are con men. And so they use what's available and they use whatever's, whatever um, assumptions or weaknesses you have. So, of course, that's what they're going to do in any cultural context with any new societal or cultural development. So the Internet comes along. Well, that's just they're going to adapt. They're going to figure out, oh, I can use the Internet. And, hey, it's really easy if I just send an email and pretend to be someone I'm not. I mean, I don't, have, I don't even have to change my facial expressions. I mean, it's easier for them. So, of course, they're going to exploit it. And, of course, they're going to be... Uh, online predators and of course people are going to be afraid because this is a real phenomenon and people are getting scammed all the time so uh, just to say that it's this cultural phenomenon and it's just this projection of our fears it's just postmodern BS I mean I can't I can't even fathom how people think like this it's like they're so it's like they want to be so divorced from reality that they they come up with these just harebrained ideas about how things work that have no relation to, to reality, and they're just happy in these castles in the sky that they've made with their grand ideas that don't actually make sense. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it, it's very easy to label someone uh, who is a psychopath killer or a psychopath, uh, but, to, but to begin to make all the distinctions uh, between the different types of psychopaths and, and how their um, inner landscape manifests uh, what their actions are. I mean, this is a whole other <clears throat> kind of sphere of, of understanding. And um, for anyone who's, I think, read very much of this, uh, it's scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it's it's just like finding out that, um, you know, all the politicians and leaders, the level of corruption that's at work, it is frightening. Um, so there are implications in in knowing for a fact that, uh, that there's a fundamental um, not giving a shitness uh, that exists within many people who have a lot of power over us, and um, and so I think what we're seeing here is you know a, a way to buffer that, a way to uh, make all of this knowledge um, much easier to to swallow in a, in a half measure by, by making a flawed theory that's somewhat comforting yeah yeah well yeah when you when you first get into uh psychopathy and you know you're reading the the case studies it's it's uh, it's so foreign and it is so frightening and and it, there there is that yeah the, just the best description is foreign and you know it's like alien mm-hmm. and and i think uh i think that really scares people to the core um but 
it's such a useful approach to it because it's, it, it is a way to, to look at it and understand it. Um, what a lot of these theories are you know, that we're seeing today are trying to do is basically say, no, these, these people are actually like us and, you know, and we can make them, uh, make them better. And that really just, um, uh, demolishes that, that understanding and that, that way of looking at it. Or worse, they'll say they can be useful. We, we can, uh-huh. They can be valuable. I mean, yeah. Dutton really goes off the rails. Yeah, they present, he presents it as an ideal. Yeah. <laughs> I want to go back to what you were saying, Ilan, about the fear involved. Because these guys that wrote this book, Myth of the Born Criminal, they're saying they're, they're using a kind of psychoanalyzing method of it and projection that these are all just societal fears that we are projecting out onto some other um you know with a capital o some other in order to uh, make ourselves feel about feel better about ourselves and the evil that humanity is capable of and so that's their explanation in a nutshell but i think what's really going on is that these people themselves are projecting their own fear because their own fear is that this is real that people like this actually exist. Because if people like this actually exist, that means that there are millions of people on this planet who have the ability to rape, torture, mutilate, and murder people, including infants and babies, and to not feel a thing about it, and to even enjoy it in some instances. That is a scary thought. Now, of course, it is a totally rational thought because we see this happening all the time. Mm-hmm. And we look at these crimes and we say, and we're disgusted by them because it's totally alien. It's totally outside of our frame of reference how anyone could do such a thing and not only do such a thing to enjoy it. Well, the, the thing that's even more kind of jaw-dropping is that it is happening and they're, mm-hmm. and it's somehow they're just brushing it away. Mm-hmm. And so by... By engaging in this kind of mental gymnastics, what they're really doing is is calming themselves and saying, oh, well, no, well, they're doing it in the guise of being politically correct and, and liberal and, and nice and kind. That, oh, ev- you know, everyone's, everyone's got a bit of humanity and everyone's just got a bit of evil in them. But by doing so, what they're really telling themselves is that, oh, these psychopaths, these people that do these things, well, they, they actually do have a little bit of good in them. And that means there's a little bit of hope. And that means I don't have to be totally afraid that these people are just nonstop monsters and that evil doesn't exist. So it's a way of shutting out the, the perception of the existence of evil in the world. And that is a comforting thing if you don't want to look at it. Well, the bizarre thing, too, is that it was the, oh, I, I won't say bizarre, but ironic, maybe, um, that in studying psychopathy, it was really the first time that I had hope for you know, any like just a little piece, just a, a smidgen of hope for for humanity. Because when you when you do look at the world and you do look at the massive evil uh, that's just committed, you know, all over the world, all over the to- all all the time, um, it's what what kind of hope can you have? Mm-hmm. But when you realize that there is this um, aspect of um, you know so-called humanity that doesn't have a conscience. And that really is a, a big part of the root of the problem. Then, then you have a way to approach um, these things. 
Yeah, I mean, that reminds me of uh, something that Lobachevsky says or quotes from, it's, I think, in the original Latin, but, uh, you know, do not attempt to cure what you don't understand. So you have all of these well-meaning NGOs uh, and, and various organiza- organizations that are working towards peace in the world. Uh, and I'm sure many of them are, are well-intended, and I'm sure many of them aren't under the employ of George Soros, um, but at this, you know, working at, at from the basics, um, you know, having an objective understanding of what the state of affairs is in the world has to be the point from which we start from. And that that's not to say that we have the answers to how uh, things should be addressed necessarily, um, although the the, the Inuit uh, Indians or or the Eskimos or whatever culture that was seem to have their own solution. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least we're starting from basics. We're saying there are some people who care about others and there are others who absolutely don't uh, have any sort of feeling for their fellow man. And as soon as we can acknowledge that and really understand what it means at a base level, uh, that's, that's the point from which I think we can start to seek solutions. It is it is even reassuring mm-hmm. because when you can see that this almost absolute evil can exist within humanity, then that does give a little hope in the sense that there is the possibility for good. Everyone isn't totally evil. And uh, so it's... Well, I think I'll move on to some more topics from this article because they need to be addressed. We need to shine the light on this nonsense. Um, well, I guess we can get into a little bit about the genetics thing because one of the things, one of the arguments these guys are making is that the, the genetic link isn't clear and so that the, the direction of causality isn't totally established. So the the kind of simplistic view would be that there's this psychopath gene and that everyone that has this gene becomes a psychopath. And that's the, the kind of, that's the way that people tend to look at it. Well, then, then that would be giving rise to the phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, which is a very simplistic way of viewing mm-hmm. complex subjects. But again, that's the folk wisdom. But, uh, but that, like the, they point out, there is no 100% known genetic link. So, I mean, they, they find these genes that may be involved somehow. Um, they do the uh, heredity um, analyses where they say that, you know, psychopathy in some instances is like 80% influenced by um, by nature and then 20% by, by uh, nurture, for example. And I just think personally that this approach is, is I mean, it's good that people are looking into it, but I think... At this point, it's really um, barking up the wrong tree because we really don't know enough about heredity to be able to say with any degree of certainty how genes and stuff like that affect a personality and affect how a a person works in that sense. I mean, we can find these physical links between certain genes and conditions, but um, there doesn't seem to... but, But psychopathy, when it comes down to it, is really has more, I think, to do with a person's... Um, mind with their consciousness, with the way with the way they they work on the inside, 
not necessarily in their guts or in their in their actual brain, but the way they actually operate on a mental level. And there's this comes back to this whole materialism thing that that, that genes determine everything. Well, genes and nurture. Well, there's more to the universe than than just that, and there there's probably even more to heredity than that, because first of all, genes aren't the only form of physical heredity. Um, there's we're discovering new new forms of of heredity all the times all the time, and that that can be information even encoded into the the shape and structure of a cell. Now, there's no there's no gene that determines the the shape of a shell. Uh, of a cell, sorry, a cell wall, for example, there's it's trans it's transmitted directly. So the cell divides, and that information is is just passed on from cell to cell with no genetic influence. So even on a physical level, there is there are types of heredity that aren't determined by genes, and these the these um, these configurations have information, and they are essential for the way that our bodies work, even though even though they're not genes. And we don't even know if all heredity is physical or not. We can get into that's where you can get into stuff like reincarnation. You know, can can a consciousness transmit from body to body, and is that a form of heredity? And what effect does that have on genes? And what effect does that have on the body? And vice versa. We just don't know enough about this. So to point out that there's no genetic link is not the same thing as saying psychopathy doesn't exist. There may not be any genetic link. On the other hand, there may be, it may have something to do with gene networks and the way all these things come together, which affect the brain in some way that we don't fully understand yet. And that brain-mind interface is somehow skewed in such a way that results in the, the personality type we see as a psychopath. But again, we just simply don't know. To use, so to use this as, a, as an argument against the existence of psychopathy is just, I, to, I think, totally wrong-headed. Because, like I've been saying, we just don't know at this point. We're not smart enough. We don't know enough. We don't know, and, and science is uh, directed in a way where uh, we don't ask why, and we don't look at you know the the why of it, and um, those non-material aspects of you know scientific um, literature just doesn't. It's not going in that direction, mm-hmm. and that's really unfortunate because there there are you know there are there have been. Uh, plenty of really good scientists who have put effort into that direction, and they get pushed aside and and laughed at. Mm-hmm. Just a couple more things from this article, then we'll move on. Another one. First of all, um, well, this guy Vigneron actually says that the DSM diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder is actually it's more clear and more direct and. Uh, um, basically more valid than the psychopathy diagnosis because it focuses only on these behaviors. So you can just check off a list of the behaviors and there you have antisocial personality. And, um, that's, it's just laughable because, first of all, on the one hand, he's saying that a psychopathy diagnosis, um, it robs a person of their, you know, their inner complexity and what's going on inside. And then on the other hand, he says, oh, this is a great diagnosis because you just check off the behaviors. Well, there's nothing more, uh, you, there's no better way to, to ignore what's going on w- within a person than to just focus on behaviors. I mean, that's what behaviorism taught us like three generations ago. And why? And that's why behaviorism is dead in the water because it's totally false and doesn't give any picture of what's going on. So... You're not looking at yeah. the source of the behaviors. You're, yeah. just, you're just seeing the end product of a very complex process. And there can obviously be multiple causes for the same types of behavior. Mm-hmm. So 
it's but even if he's just looking at that argument it's it's not it's not valid anyway because hair has a checklist of you know yeah. when you're when you're looking at at that behaviors as well so i mean yeah come on <laughs> yeah come on <laughs> and then this is the end this is one of the last points he makes which is just rich um, so he says, perhaps the distinction between a psychopath and a pers- person suffering from APD seems unimportant. Well, first of all, do people really suffer from APD? Uh, I think they're pretty happy with themselves. But anyways, the authors argue that it is not. Media and pop culture diagnoses of psychopathy are prevalent, and they warp our understanding of evil. Denying psychopaths the full range of human emotions denies them full nuanced biographies and presupposes the possibility of clinical knowledge about how someone actually feels. So this... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's a the totally appropriate reaction. <laughs> okay. Can you even dignify this statement? But go ahead and try. <laughs> um, well, then he goes on to say, oh, you know, maybe, the, maybe Gregory, the guy I knew in Kenya, maybe he actually had a rich and nuanced biography, and I was just denying him that by supposing that he might be a psychopath. Well, again, there's a simple answer for this. These guys and women, these psychopaths, don't have full and nuanced biographies because they don't have the full range of human emotions. We're not denying them anything. It's not there. Mm-hmm. They don't feel it. And uh, I think, it, I mean, to say that, um, well, to have the hubris to think that we can know what another person feels, well, you can, that's a whole philosophical issue, but I think it's just he's totally overstating his case. We can have some idea of what a person feels, some some hint here or there, but we don't even have to go that far um, because a consistent way of life, consistent behavior is going to tell you something about a person. And when a person consistently behaves in a way where they take advantage of other people, manipulate them, and are just jerks mm-hmm. all the time, that says something. Well, not only that, but... There's been, especially in Harris' work, a lot of self-reporting. And by their mm-hmm. own reportage, these people, they don't feel yeah. pity. They don't feel empathy. They just, you know, it's just like this is something that's, it's a puzzlement to them. And they, these are these are real statements by these these folks. I mm-hmm. mean, like, they, they no, you know, never occurred to me. Yeah. So, or, or when it does occur to them, it's uh, it's after gaining some kind of psychological knowledge of what normal people do experience mm-hmm. and feel. And, uh, you know, as we were saying earlier, they're, you know, they're fantastic mimics of, of uh, personalities and emotions. And they've simply found this adaptive strategy mm-hmm. uh, to uh, present themselves as normal feeling, mm-hmm. thinking individuals. It's just more data for them to, to make use of. Well, that's a, a good transition to this next article that deals with some of Dutton's work. So this is, I love this guy's name. This article is written by John Haltewanger, mm-hmm. um, published by Elite Daily and titled, People with Traits of Psychopath of, oh, how is it? People with traits of psychopaths actually make the best leaders. That's the the name of the article. And it's got a nice charming picture of uh, from American Psycho. Now, if anybody's familiar with uh, Elite Daily, it's a fairly new but pretty popular pop news type organization. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of ironic that uh, in the previous article, the the at the Pacific Standard, uh, Peter. Vigneron, whatever. Uh, he's uh, 
talking about pop psychology and, yeah. and all these diagnoses. So let's get into some of that. Well, I'm just, I'm looking at it right now, and there are over two million likes for this article on uh, this website. Yes. So I've got I've just got a few references. I think you guys might have some more too. But um, so the idea about this is that uh, psychopaths aren't all that bad. It literally says that. that that's one of the headings. Yeah. Not all psychopaths are bad. Mm-hmm. There are some good psychopaths out there, apparently. Apparently. Um, so, in other words, this guy writes, some of us might have more psychopathic tendencies than we realize. And when our friends say you're a psychopath, dude, they may be more correct than they realize. This shouldn't necessarily be viewed in a negative light, though, as there's a great deal of evidence Possessing psychopathic traits has a number of benefits. Actually, you could make the argument that the most successful leaders and individuals in history were psychopaths in some respects. Being a bit of a psychopath can help you achieve success in many walks of life, as crazy as that sounds, no pun intended. Almost anyone you know could be a psychopath, but that doesn't mean they're bad people. Um, Okay, so... (laughs) So some of the some of the most successful leaders and individuals in history. Now, um, what are your standards for success? I would ask. So I think, yeah, for sure, some of the most successful leaders uh, were, psych- were psychopaths in, in the sense that they were very successful at murdering a whole bunch of people, not really giving a shit one way or the other, and um, just being in it for themselves and getting a lot out of it, being very successful. So. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that statement. Actually, there's there's a slurring of the lines, though, with uh, this idea of what it means to be a successful psychopath mm-hmm. and a good psychopath. Yeah. Uh, Dutton's latest book that he published last year uh, was uh, was like the Good Psychopath's Guide on like Being success. Success, Successful Nonsense, something or other. But um. But yeah, it's it's that it's that twisting that we see um, from psychopaths of, of this of this language to turn a successful psychopath, meaning one who has a really effective mask, uh, who's a really effective manipulator, and uh, succeeds in doing that, versus a good psychopath who has these uh, some kind of like, these ad- admirable traits. You know, you, you get the altruistic psychopath. Yeah. Well, he he goes on in the article. He says, um, you know, people want to know you'll be there for them during tough times, but they also want to see you can handle yourself under pressure. When you've conquered your emotions, you can do anything. It appears many psychopaths have this advantage. And what he seems to be missing is that there is this whole uh, psychological component uh, of intent. You know, what is a psychopath? What is their actual intention? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's to be a leader for the sake of accruing power right. to themselves in, in any form that they find most attractive. It isn't altruistic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it appears many psychopaths have this advantage of conquering their emotions. Uh, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, they don't, their, their emotional state, uh, they don't run into the same types of conflicts, uh, we can surmise that most normal people would have. Um, you know, there is no, uh, nuanced, um, full range of emotions, as you were saying before, Harrison. Yeah, they have no emotions to conquer. Right. Based on a false premise. 
Yeah. And not only that, that that in this society that's been held up as a standard to emulate, which is and and a lot of it goes back. I mean, we'll drag another term into it. If if you have a group of people that are authoritarian followers, that's exactly what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who has no doubt because that preserves them from having any doubt. They just put their faith in you know whomever they've elected to you know have and and you know so that person's strong and fearless and goes out and does whatever they're doing and we're like raw behind him because we don't have to we don't have to question ourselves then so you know it's a happy marriage well another point he makes is that according to research teddy roosevelt john f kennedy franklin d roosevelt ronald reagan and bill clinton all possess psychopathic characteristics um <laughs> that certainly may be true of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and possibly Teddy Roosevelt. But I, I think, you know, as you were saying before, Shane, there's this strong blurring of the lines. Um, why can't we attribute um, good intentions and in, in strong leadership with, uh, you know, you can be assertive, you can be authoritative, uh, you can be morally uh righteous and have indignation towards injustice doesn't you don't have to connect that to psychopathic traits and therefore psychopathic traits are Mm -hmm. are this positive thing Mm uh they they can all be seen on their own as a kind of authentic uh power if you will um a, a power that is born of intent to lead as constructively as possible so you know, once again, you have one of these articles that makes it okay to be a little psychopathic because, hey, you know, some of our best leaders had psychopathic traits. And I think what we're missing here and, and in that earlier article is a whole other set of distinctions that um, that seemed designed, if not unconsciously, to confuse people terribly about what psychopathy is and how it affects people. Mm-hmm. Well, even on that, um, the study showing that all these have had psychopathic characteristics, the article goes on to to um, to quote this guy Scott Lillianfield. He's a, a psychopathy researcher, but his his work on psychopathy is kind of um, he goes off in his own directions. So he defines psychopathy in terms of fearless dominance. And so he uses these words, uh, these descriptive words, um, to give uh, attributes to psychopaths that aren't really aren't really called from the PCLR. So he uses words like fearlessness and boldness and resilience. And so he writes, an easy way to think about it as, is as a combination of physical and social fearlessness. People high in boldness don't have a lot of apprehension about either physical or social things that would scare the rest of us. It's often a kind of resilience because you don't show a lot of anxiety or frustration in the face of everyday life challenges. So he's, like you're saying, Ilan, he's basing this on just totally wrong ideas because he's taking these just normal human traits that psychopaths may, may have in common with other people and then saying that, oh, these are psychopathic traits and therefore these people were psychopaths. Well, a person doesn't need to be a psychopath to be bold or to be fearless now, because what is fearlessness? Well, it seems like they're talking about courage. And a person can have courage while still feeling fear. Mm-hmm. The only reason we don't think that they're, they're afraid is because they're acting above the level of their fear. They're choosing to do something in spite of their fear. Mm-hmm. So we can't 
in, in this sense, the, the other guy, Vigneron, is kind of right. We can't know what they feel in a, in a situation like this just by looking at their behavior. We can come to conclusions about it, but they'll probably be wrong. Now, we can get an idea, though, about what people actually feel, and we can do this by reading biographies and, um, and just, again, looking at their life patterns and how they live across the course of their lives. And the consequences of their actions. Mm-hmm. Were they positive or negative? Did they mm-hmm. help or hinder? And even just from introspection, be able to see yourself, um, it's not like people are these black and white creatures that either are afraid and powerless or totally fearless and psychopathic. It's possible to be scared of something and to still do it because of some higher goal or higher value that overcomes that fear and to be bold and assertive and to just basically to act in spite of fear or anxiety or whatever. And so it's just totally wrong to to look at a person making these kind of decisions and say they must be a psychopath or have psychopathic traits. No, in fact, what they're doing is actually the exact opposite of psychopathy because they're acting in a way that is often for good for some higher value in spite of these lower emotions and that often determine behavior in people without as much self-control. And on uh, when we compare that to psychopaths, psychopaths, first of all, they don't feel these emotions in the first place, so they have nothing to overcome. They don't overcome or conquer their emotions. They just act totally mechanically. It's strictly based on the just the drives, the acquisitiveness, and what they want, and uh, the drive for power. That's that's it. Yeah, and they're really preying on people's um, internal conflict. Like you know, there's, they're they're basically saying, you know, okay, yeah, throw all this conflict that you're feeling inside out the window, and just be confident. You know, mm-hmm. don't have any kind of struggle. And that really takes the the meaning out of life, uh, because they, as as we talked about in past shows. You know, it's from that struggle that, that we do find meaning in life, that we do grow. And this is basically just saying, okay, yeah, just revert to a very primitive uh, level. Well, <laughs> this guy writing this article, Halty Wanger, goes on to say, correspondingly, there's evidence psychopaths can be fundamentally heroic. Their impulsivity makes them less hesitant to take risks in dangerous situations. This makes a lot of sense. While heroism is often linked with selflessness, you also have to be somewhat reckless to sacrifice your own safety for that of others. This all goes to show we live in a relative world. Something that is seemingly negative can lead to a great and wonderful things, to great and wonderful things. In the words of the late, great Robin Williams, you're only given a a little spark of madness. You You mustn't lose it. So next time someone calls you a psychopath, Thank them for the inadvertent compliment. Again, so many things are on on the heroism thing. Uh, Somebody did a study, again, I read it, we read so much, of, uh, you know, some very well-decorated Iraqi veterans, you know, who were, like, famous for leading the charge. But if you went and talked to to their combat, you know, companions, they were really down on it because these guys would just get out there and just go do something and without a thought for what situation they might might have been creating for the rest of the company. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was totally about their own glory and what they were going to pull off. And I mean, uh, and from a distance, you're a general and you're going, well, yeah, he did this, he did that, and I'll just give him a medal. And the people who had to actually work with them, he was just... Just you know, they don't call them loose cannons for nothing. Mm-hmm. He's just creating 
very, very dangerous situations around them because they had no thought. Mm-hmm. So this guy actually, you know, he defines heroism in a pretty okay way when he says that uh, it's to sacrifice your own safety for that of others. But what he's actually doing is he's he's uh, he's flattening out the the features that are here because there is a difference between recklessness and, and heroism. So he's he's on the one hand he's saying that heroism is doing something for others even if it might harm yourself, but Nowhere does he actually say this is what psychopaths do, because psychopaths don't do that. Mm-hmm. They won't put themselves in that situation for someone else. It will simply be because they're reckless and they might get a high, uh, a high out of it. Mm-hmm. They just do it for the fun of it, for the thrill. So there's this flattening out and equivalent, like making an equivalence between just total selfish recklessness and actual heroism. Mm-hmm. So to say that it's heroism, it's just, it's just plain nonsense. And then to use that quote from Robin Williams, Little Spark of Madness, mm-hmm. he wasn't talking about psychopathy. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. it's... That was very disingenuous. Oh, it's ridiculous. And uh, yeah, great and wonderful things. Psychopathy can lead to great and wonderful things. Talk oh. about just total ignorance. Look around. Great and wonderful. Yeah. I mean, you, if you read, if you look into a case study and you read at the, just the awful, awful destruction that, Psychopaths commit. Even at you know, uh, we don't have to even look at the global scale. Mm-hmm. You look at look at personal relationships, yeah. and people who have psychopaths in their lives and have had close relationships, they're they're scarred. Like it's mm-hmm. and they're it's you know they some don't come out of it. Mm-hmm. They're traumatized forever. Yeah, yeah and that it's really it's really awful and um, just grievous. Like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then you go back to the guy in Kenya, what what he was hearing about this person that he had hired to be his driver was the result of this kind of personal path of destruction he had taken through their lives. You know, And they all knew from painful experience that this guy was not to be trusted. And then he goes back and goes, oh, well, maybe his upbringing was just you know, not the best. And blah, blah, blah. Well, for, for that article... I- I'm hesitant to come to any conclusions because this guy obviously has no clue about anything really. So I wouldn't even um, be confident saying that this guy might have been a psychopath because first of all, I mean, was, is the story actually true? He could have just made it up just for for the right. sake of the article. Mm-hmm. And and um, and sometimes there are people that a lot of people don't like, and it doesn't mean they're a psychopath. So I, I'd actually I'd like to read a case study on this guy if someone can come around for a while and see what he's up to because that would actually be interesting, more interesting than Vigneron's article. Mm-hmm. But uh, getting into the Kevin Dutton stuff from this guy, so he quotes a couple things from Dutton. Um, he said, well, he, this latest book, the, how, like the Good Psychopath Guide to Success or whatever, um, it's co-written with a guy, Andy McNabb, a retired SAS sergeant. And he argues that psychopaths achieve success because they have the ability to turn off the empathy switch when necessary. They're not always completely cold-blooded, but can be ruthless in the appropriate context. So this guy's idea is that psychopaths can actually feel empathy, but they just have the ability to turn it on and off whenever they want. I feel your pain. Oh, God. This is just a total fantasy. Um like, I don't know where McNabb is getting this because there's no clinical data to show it. I mean, the, and unless he's just been being totally disingenuous, which I think is a big possibility, 
the only thing I can think of that might lead him to come to this conclusion is that he's just been taken in by psychopaths. He can see when they pretend to have empathy because it'll benefit them in some way, Mm -hmm. and psychopaths are excellent at that. Mm -hmm. They're great at appearing to be perfect, empathic, kind people, and then the minute they get what they want, then you're a used tissue. They're almost better than than regular people because it's almost a study. I mean, empathy... Empathy is extended towards weak and hurting points, so they are experts at identifying mm-hmm. those weaknesses and playing to them. And of course, if you're hurting, and somebody is playing to that pain and to that what you know whatever it is that that is you know bothering you and giving you grief, then of course you're going to lap it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I do question you know what a Dutton psychology is in his first book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. Uh, I, I haven't read it. And I won't. <laughs> but uh, he he writes about how wi- uh, uh, psychopaths can have more empathy than normal human <laughs> beings. And his reasoning for this is because they can identify uh, empathy from others and and their suffering. Now, identifying suffering and and getting off on it isn't the same as feeling. Uh, feeling, feeling empathy and feeling and having you know empathetic moments like it's 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 really bizarre that you know, he he makes that distinction when it's so far off base. Well, you know, a few moments ago I said half jokingly, "I feel your pain," which is a reference to Bill Clinton. I think he said that when he was addressing the mourners of the families uh, who died in the Oklahoma City uh, terrorist bombing of of the mid nineties. And uh, Clinton's genius, if you want to call it that, was that he was uh, able to go in there, address all of these families, tell them that he felt their pain, uh, you know, at, at, a, at their, at like a, the country's low point, uh, when all of these people are suffering because of these a few hundred or so people who, who died in, in, this, uh, in this terrorist act. And then he goes around and uh, and supports the policy of spraying depleted uranium over Iraq, causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of children and and God knows how many uh, adults. Um, you know, uh, executes the war in in Serbia via NATO. Uh, I mean, how many how many egregious, horrible things has has Bill Clinton been able to um, to do? You know, simply under the cover of "I feel your pain." Well, you see, these are just some of the wonderful, how do they put it, uh, the great and wonderful things that you can do when you have the ability to turn off your empathy. I mean, oh, is that yeah. what that is? Yeah, you see, if you can just turn off your empathy, and that'll that'll give you the ability to make the hard choice to bomb an entire country and just kill tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, and uh, and not, you know, it's just it's got to be done, right? And uh, it's just that empathy switch that you got to turn off every once in a while. And it's a great and wonderful thing, apparently. Oh, I wasn't sure, but thanks for clearing yeah. that up. That's the way it is. Okay. Uh, Mark of a truly great leader. Well, just wait. That also reminds me of, of Angela Merkel's recent faux pas um, in the in a high school, talking to a bunch of kids and this uh, 13-year-old Palestinian refugee asked her a question. The, uh, the title of the discussion was uh, Great Life in Germany. Yeah, and so she basically tells this girl, oh, you know, well, 
Well, the, the, it's a young Palestinian refugees living in Germany and, um, she's like 14 years old and, and she has the chance to, uh, talk about what she's going through to, to Merkel. And she says, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I, I, I want an education. I want to be able to go to school when I'm older. And, you know, I, you know, I want what everybody else has. And, and Merkel is just so cold in her response, uh, so heartless. And she, she just basically says, well, you know, Germany can't take, um, you know, all these refugees like, like, like Africa. And, you know, we, we just, you know, we don't have, we don't, we can't cope with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the girl, well, so, so she says, so we're going to have to send some of them back. Mm-hmm. She doesn't address what the girl has said at all. Mm-hmm. Just says, Oh, this is one of the hard things about politics because, yeah, we can't take the refugees, and we're just going to have to send some of them back. We can't help everybody. So the girl starts crying, and you know, she's being consoled by you know her her friend sitting next to her. And Markle goes over, and just this, it's so icky and so revolting. Um, and and she said, "Oh, you you did a good job. Don't you cry. Handled, you handled that. Well. Yeah, you handled it really well." And the moderator says. You know, I, it's not it's not about like uh, her handling it well. She's having a tough time with uh, her situation, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And Margot just brushes it off. She's, oh, I just want to hug her. And it's just it's just so sickening uh, to to see her her just the, the the response to it. You know, after telling her, yeah, we don't want you here, mm-hmm. and then to go over and try to consult, like give her a hug. Oh, well, on that note. Um kind of a geopolitics, geopolitical situation and what these people are doing and how they feel and kind of the uh, almost unquantified, um, unqualifiable damage that they do and violence that they do in different terms. Um, and we've had uh, Max Kaiser, uh, who's been doing his show on RT for several years, um, and who really seems to have a good grasp on the situation and know uncertain terms. He comes off as a bit of a stand-up comic because he, I just found that he used to do some stand-up comedy, but he did also work on Wall Street for a number of years and had a kind of an insider's um, uh, view of how money gets made in Wall Street. And uh, we have a we have a little uh, soundbite from him here that we're going to play. This uh, piece of news was interesting. The world's wealthiest people have at least $21 trillion in assets hidden in offshore tax havens, maybe $32 trillion stashed in the Cayman Islands and in Switzerland. What was your reaction when you heard this? Well, it's well known that this, uh, this figure exists uh, for a, quite a number of years. It's been hidden because of the globe's uh, growth over the past 20 years, uh, 25 years. Nobody paid it much attention. But now that the world's entering into the synchronized global uh, pullback or recession, and in some cases a depression, then these items are, are coming to the surface. For example, the 20 to 30 trillion of wealth that's held offshore. And most of that wealth, of course, goes through Britain, goes through the UK, because Britain has the least regulated financial markets in the world. That's why MF Global was in Britain. Lehman Brothers went through Britain. Bernie Madoff went through Britain. The latest Peregrine scandal went through Britain. Uh, J.P. Morgan's two to nine billion dollar loss on their balance sheet happened in London. Uh, so London is really the headquarters for global banking fraud. Uh, 
And even though the economy is contracting in in Britain, I notice that the banking sector is still making huge profits. The Barclays chief operating officer that was caught committing fraud just got a golden parachute of eight million pounds. So, as I've said, you know, until you get rid of the financial terrorists, then you're going to continue to get, uh, you're going to have these weapons of mass financial destruction blow up in your face and cause uh, all kinds of uh, death and destruction. It's as simple as that, really. I mean, don't, if you see a banker with Gucci's in a briefcase, don't let him on an airplane. Don't let any bankers on airplanes because they fly to countries around the world and they, they have weapons of mass financial destruction, whether it's in Greece or it's in the UK, or all over Europe, and they blow up economies with fake debt, and then they just strip those economies clean for any assets. So those are your, that's your big terrorist threat. Barclays just caught laundering, um, along with HSBC, hundreds of billions of dollars in Mexican drug cartel. Barclays caught in a LIBOR scandal. HSBC caught in a LIBOR scandal. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what more do you want? The HSBC funded the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Tony Blair, his response this week, he said, well, I'm not sure hanging 20 bankers at the end of the road is a great idea. Well, you know, at least he's thinking in the, you know, kind of the right way. He finally understands that it, it, it is the bankers. He, of course, is on the board of directors for J.P. Morgan, doing deals in the Mideast, leveraging his contacts after his genocide in Iraq. So all is good in uh, the rosy city of the London So, like, you know, one of the things that we're aware of uh, in Greece over the past few years in particular are the number of people who, out of desperation and, and tough times, who've actually killed themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, this is to say nothing of the numbers of people who are suffering just trying to uh, live day to day. And why? Because of the behaviors and the policies and uh, and the actions of psychopaths who aren't coming in there with uh, automatic weapons, Gladio style. They're doing it much more covertly. And um, I think that's really what, uh, what Kaiser's getting at here. Uh, these are financial terrorists. They're inflicting terror on people. Um, and it's all the more dangerous in some ways because it's done under the auspices of official uh, government and, and banking institutions, people in ties who are sitting down in offices and, and, uh, and, and you know, making deals with one another. Well, if you want to take Greece as the most current example, uh, the Minister of Finance of Greece who, resi- who resigned uh, a week before, I think a week before the... Oh, the day after. The day after it was... Signed. After the referendum. After the, after the referendum. After the vote, he... Uh, he resigned because mm-hmm. he knew what was coming. So this guy Varoufakis uh, did an interview, and he was talking about what it was like to go and sit down with uh, the IMF and the EU and uh, the World Bank. And he described this particularly um, the German finance minister Schauble and what it was like to deal with him. This is uh, the complete lack of any de- democratic scruples on behalf of the supposed defenders of Europe's democracy. The, uh, the quite clear understanding on the other side that we are on the same page analytically, of course, that will never come out in present. And yet to have very powerful figures look at you in the eye and say, 
you're right in what you're saying, but we're going to crush you anyway. It's not that it didn't go down well. It's that there was a point-blank refusal to engage in economic arguments. I mean, he came in with this incredibly detailed plan, which they had asked for, which they had asked for, and it took them months to put it together. You put forward your, an argument you've really worked on to make sure it's logically coherent, and you're just faced with blank stares. It's as if you hadn't spoken. What you say is independent of what they say. You may as well have sung the Swedish national anthem. You'd have got the same reply. And that's startling. For someone who's used to academic debate, the other side always engages. Well, there was no engagement at all. It was not even an annoyance. It was as if someone had not spoken. So these people had gone in. They had a preformed conclusion um, that you know Greece was going to be crushed one way or another, either by their agreement or without their agreement. And there was nothing that he could say or do that was going to, to shift it because their minds had already been made up and they had absolutely no concern for the consequences. This is like a situation when you're engaging with a psychopath and they just have no reason to even put up a mask anymore because they are in total control. So they, they say, well, screw it. You know, I don't even have to pretend. So I'm just going to lay it out like it is. I don't care and I'm going to crush you. Well, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, inspired by this story, um, that we should have a new segment on the show, a short segment. Yeah, yeah. Psychopath of the week. Okay. Be- there you go. Because the the guy who Varoufakis was going head to head with was um, Germany's federal minister of finance, Wolfgang Schäuble, and he's the guy whose whose descriptions of indifference Varoufakis is basically describing. So we know a little bit about this guy Schäuble. Um, I mean, he, this guy's a long-term German politician. He's been in a bunch of cabinets. Uh, he was a vocal opponent of open source, open source software. Um, controversy was sparked by uh, Schabel's recommendation in a 2007 interview of a book by Otto Deppenhauer, who defended the Guantanamo Bay detention camp as a legally permissible response in the fight of constitutional civilization against the barbarity of terrorism. Um, so he's got a bit of a, a, um, a history uh, of uh, kind of fascist, you know, right-wing... History of violence. Mm-hmm. Yes, financial terrorism. Um, and so, you know, and, and I think we can look at him and hold him up as an example of... of precisely the type of person who uh, we're talking about here, who is a psychopath, who has an incredible amount of power and influence. Merkel depends on on this guy uh, to make all the decisions and, and in these areas, and um, and look at what he's done. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's basically destroyed and, and perpetuating the destruction of Greece uh, because of his values. Um, and I, I think he has a financial interest in in keeping things that way. Well, that's almost a given. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And he couches it in patriotic terms of you know protecting the German taxpayers and their investment, and it all sounds so good on paper. But uh, let's see. What else is going on in the news? Well, I think we have a, 
a second part oh, yeah, of Max Kaiser. This is where, where he really kind of takes off the gloves a bit. Well, I want to go back to this uh, Tim Geithner comment that you talked about where he, he was talking about removing the incentives uh, in terms of the LIBOR fraud. And you think about that statement for a second. What he's saying is that these criminals shouldn't be prosecuted for committing crimes, but the incentives for them to commit the crime should be removed. So uh, I guess the, for example, Jerry Sandusky is a football coach in America who was caught raping children at the Penn State University. So if Tim Geithner was uh, asked to adjudicate about what should be the penalty for Jerry Sandusky, his solution would be, well, to remove the showers from the locker room, uh, remove uh, any suggestive material within Jerry Sandusky, remove the incentive for Jerry Sandusky to commit rape. But Jerry Sandusky committing rape, that's not the problem. And the public, unfortunately, doesn't understand that Timothy Geithner is a financial rapist. And they should see him in the same repulsive manner they look at Jerry Sandusky. Timothy Geithner should not be able to show his face in public without people vomiting in the street, as they would if they see Jerry Sandusky, a serial rapist. Timothy Geithner is a serial financial rapist. Barclays Bank, HSBC, uh, uh, J.P. Morgan, Jamie Dimon, Lloyd Blankfein, these are serial kitty rapists. Now, this is what we're dealing with. What do you want to do about these serial kitty rapists? Do you want to remove the incentive for them to commit kitty rape, that is to say, rape children, or do you want to prosecute them for the crimes that they've committed? Unfortunately, America believes that kitty rape or financial rape, if it's committed by Tim Geithner, is okay. Give him a pat on the back, a big bonus, and maybe he'll be running J.P. Morgan next year. Who knows? Kitty rapists get great jobs in America. I think he's more right than he thought when making the comparison. Yeah, you know, there's multiple parallels going on there. Oh, yeah. Usually. Most of these guys probably are actual, literal kitty rapists. Yeah, and I think the other point here is that, uh, you know, if, if we don't allow ourselves to think of these people uh, in just those terms, even if we take the literal um, kitty rape, if, even if we take that out of the equation, uh, the incredible amounts of damage that these people are doing, um, if we don't take it that seriously, if we're not uh, disgusted and and uh, and and repelled uh, by their actions to that degree, uh, then we don't have a grasp of the situation as it is. Um, you know, it's it'll just be business as usual for a very long time. You know, I I don't know. I was I was just riding my horse back there, and I think I had a conversion experience to um, what all those guys in the first article were thinking. I, th I think Kaiser's wrong and that what he's actually just seeing is the the, the projection of cultural fears onto uh, kitty rapists and, and bankers. And that's, you know, what we're just, whenever we're repulsed by a kitty rapist, we're just actually projecting our fear of the own, you know, our own evil that's inside of us and that uh, humans are capable of. And um, we're just doing the same thing with the financial kitty rapists. Uh, I think I might be convinced... Do you feel better? No. Now, now that now that you've uh, realized that, yeah, does that help? <laughs> no, actually, it makes me feel dirty inside. Um, uh, that's that's the bizarre thing with these ideas is that they don't really provide you know any any um, anything of use 
Uh, you know, any how can you apply this, this these nonsensical things? They, they they don't do anything. No, they add to the noise and the confusion. Exactly. So that's probably the function, just mm-hmm. to just to muddy the waters even further. But, uh, well, that's very useful now because, you know, if in the future you have somebody of uh, of significant weight uh, saying, you know, Obama kind of reminds me of a of, of a psychopath and and all that he's doing, uh, then somebody can just say, well, that's a good thing, or that can be a good thing, and thanks for the important compliment. Yes. And, and Roosevelt apparently had psychopathic traits, so... so and everyone loves JFK. <laughs> yes. Um, there's a... I found another article on uh, this uh, glorification of psychopathy. Uh, it's uh, from Time uh, by Eric Barker. It's from his column, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, ironically. And it's called uh, Three Things Psychopath Can Teach You About Being a Happier Person. So it uh, it covers our, our favorite uh, disinfo guide, uh, Kevin Dutton's book, Wisdom of Psychopaths. And in it, he, he talks about uh, going through this uh, experiment. So earlier, I was kind of saying, I, I wonder... I kind of question about uh, what uh, Kevin Dutton's you know, interior landscape is. Mm-hmm. So, but apparently uh, he did have a reaction, does have reactions to um, these images that, you know, are revolting. So he, he, he did this uh, experiment where you uh, visit some scientists and they apply a this powerful magnet to parts of your brain. It's called a transcranial magnetic stimulation. And so apparently what this does is it turns down the electrical signals in your in parts of your brain and um, they set it up so it would turn down uh, basically how a psychopath would respond and where those parts of the brain are absent. You know, So they, they kind of mimic that in uh, a so-called normal person's uh, brain. And cut uh, Dutton. He uh, he describes it as it's as if you had a six pack of beer but don't feel the tiredness and sluggishness that goes with it. Your inhibitions are gone, but you're very alert. Uh, a lot of us drive around with a foot hover, hovering over the brake pedal too much. Psychopaths drive around without any thoughts or thought to the brake pedal at all, They're, with their foot flooring to the gas. It was a beautiful feeling, I must say. It was really, really good. So uh, the article continues with uh, making this comparison uh, between psychopaths and uh, Buddhists, the the Buddhist brain, and how similar they are, and uh, how um, they have they both have this increased rationality. Uh, this idea of living in the present, keeping cool under pressure, uh, some of these topics we've already explored. Now, of course, I mean, psychopaths don't have increased rationality. They, they don't have any rationality um, uh, having to do with the external world, which you need to um, to make appropriate conclusions. Uh, everything is defined you know, just through the self. And... And this idea about uh, living in the present uh, is something that Hare brings up in Without Conscience. And and it is interesting to see this idea um, promoted so much in um, 
Western pseudo spirituality, Western Buddhism, and you know all, all these all these ideas as if it's the the key to our happiness and the key to a productive life. But this is how so this is how psychopaths operate. Maybe we should question this 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 idea instead of saying, okay, well you know this this idea is out there and you know it, it's popular and. Um, so there's there's these three things. The article is called uh, Three Things That you know, Can Make You can, That Psychopaths Can Teach You About Being a Happy Person. So the first is focus on the positive and just do it. So um, Dutton was was kind of talking about this when he he went through this uh, magnetic brain deadening and. Um, you know, that it makes you feel like energized and, and confident and that your foot comes off the brake. Well, you know, um, brakes are there for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. they're, they're, they're useful to uh, not get into accidents. And you could also say focus on what positive. Yeah, exactly. Who's positive? My positive. Right. All right, let's go for it. Yeah, this this idea of positivity. Um, you know, it's, it's usually often defined in a very selfish way. Mm-hmm. And it's just uh, all about the self, and you know what can I do to make myself and you know my life more enjoyable. And you know, it's it's actually I think it's it's a more modern um, way of looking at life. Um, you know, particularly in like the past fifty years or so, um, you know, this this idea of just everything um, everything should be about you know to to make ourselves happy like and to your personal quality of life yeah yeah um yeah and and it really does um take out the the meaning that we can find in life and uh and and all the other emotions that are necessary to experience well it takes out the idea of social relations interrelations and that it's not just your own good but it should be the good of the the situation, the general situation that you find yourself in. That well, I read a couple things on character that I should grab that one. But the idea that that how our idea of what a good character is, in fact, that even, that word doesn't even get used very much anymore. Whereas it's it's very much a, much a 19th century idea that the highest goal in life was the cultivation of character, which I guess was another way of saying good morals. But encompassed within that was the idea that a, a person of high character always acted as best they could, not just for their own good, but for their, their social milieu. Mm-hmm. And that, that idea has pretty much disappeared. I've got an image of Dutton, you know, after he takes this thing, and let's say he managed to find some technology to permanently turn off those sections of his brain because it would be such a great thing. And, you know, he encounters this little kid that's like eating a nice candy bar or something and he really wants it and ordinarily he might have some you know pang of conscience you know i can't steal candy from a baby or from a kid and uh but you turn off those sections of your brain and there's no brake light and it's just oh steal the candy steal the candy bar eat it and it just feels great yeah. this feels good i want this I, in the present. i've got the candy and i don't feel bad because i just stole from this little kid who's crying and you know wants his mommy mm-hmm. Um, it's is that the kind of life that anyone would want? Well, maybe someone like Dutton, and I think that says something about him. Yeah, well, go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, this Time magazine article uh, comparing um, psychopathy to Buddhists is it's it's abhorrent. 
it's offensive. Uh, not not that there aren't Buddhist psychopaths. I'm sure there are. Well, I'd say there, there's plenty when you look <laughs> at their history. Right. But, I mean, in, in its ideal, you're talking about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I right. mean, it's right. and, and he conflates that with uh, living in the present, which is really his, you know, his thinking is self-gratification. Yeah. Stealing candy from a baby because it's going to make you happy in that moment. Yeah. And there is, you know, in theory anyway, there's a big difference between being mindful, which means exercising, you know, consciousness and awareness to everything you're doing and how you're being to self-gratification. In fact, it's the very opposite. So, uh, you know. Uh, well, the whole point of mindfulness and its right thing is, is having the ability to choose to be aware and to observe and then to make a conscious choice. But this this isn't choice at all. It's just impulse. Impulse. I wonder if Kevin admires them all because he really would like to be one. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it. Yeah. God, that's a frightening thought. Ooh. Oh, that was pretty much it from this article. The other the other two were, you know, to live in the moment, which we pretty much already addressed and to be able to uncouple behavior from emotion. Now, psychopaths don't uncouple behavior from emotion. They don't have emotion. They just have behavior. <laughs> so there's no uncoupling involved. Now, now you know, when, when we do look at, um, you know, being able to self-observe and, um, and, and see, you know, kind of see yourself outside yourself, you know, that, that can be a useful thing. But that's not something that psychopaths do. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole point of it is is to inhibit impulsive behavior. Exactly. Yeah, yeah to have some breaks. <laughs> yeah. So that's what came out uh, for me reading these articles is that these people, all they're really doing is, well, they're ascribing all these abilities to psychopaths that they don't actually have. And so even Dutton and McNabb saying that psychopaths just have this ability to turn off the empathy switch well, they don't have any such ability. What they're describing is this just distorted, perverted version of what a real human should have, which is some ability to, to detach emotions from behaviors, to not be controlled by the behaviors, but be, to be informed by them. Mm-hmm. So to make a good choice based on the, the stimuli coming from your own body, your own emotions, and from the world around you, to make an appropriate choice based on that. And psychopaths don't have that and that's what these people just don't seem to realize mm-hmm. so not only not only are they projecting this human ability onto them they don't even realize the what that ability actually is and how to how to do it in their own lives it's not an ability it's a lack mm-hmm. and they're they're totally mistaking it totally mistaking it yeah. well in the news i want to talk about one story we can probably find a relation to psychopathy but uh, i won't I just wanted to say it because it's interesting with the just the recent um, resurgence of the MH17 story in the news and what's going on, because apparently some some journalists have heard from unnamed anonymous sources that the official, you know, Dutch safety board or whoever is doing the investigation for MH17 that they they've come to the conclusion that Russia did it. Big surprise. And so with no evidence cited, no actual sources cited, but they're saying this and it's making, you know, it's making headlines all over the place. And then a couple of days later, this video comes out um, that was shot at the MH17 crash site. Um, allegedly, I mean, it looks, it, it looks legit to me, 
Um, but uh, so these the the militia guys there had had found the crash site and it's got them you know it's got the translations of what they're saying and walking around the crash site videotaping it and looking through bags and stuff and looking at uh, at ID tags and finding out who these people are and there's some things that they say um, in the course of conversation that the these Western news agencies are taking and just blowing like way out of proportion there are these. Uh, there's a whole, been a whole series of articles the past week or so from news.com.au, so Australian news agency, and just. Uh, if you read the actual transcripts of what they're saying, the the news agencies have completely yeah. twisted it around. Mm-hmm. So they're saying that this is this is the moment that the rebels realized their fatal mistake that they thought they were shooting down a different plane and they accidentally shot down the, this passenger airliner. And it's the it's the ultimate proof that Russia was behind it, and you know it's this rock solid case, you know slam dunk, case closed, smoking gun. This is it. When uh, anything anything but. Um, when you listen to what these guys are saying, first of all they're saying, oh, you know where's the where's the Sukhoi, where's the the jet that we shot down um, or that crashed or whatever, and oh this is a passenger. Airliner, and they say stuff like, "Oh, and um, the 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 jeep shot down the the airliner um, to make it look like we did it." And they're saying, yeah. "Why why why does the passenger jet? Who gave them clearance to fly over this area? This is a war zone." And so the these Western news agencies are interpreting this as as if these guys were um, in, attempting to shoot down these jets, and they accidentally shot down the the passenger jet. Well. I went. I remembered something from the time because I was I was reading a lot of um, updates and uh, sit reps and just um, press conferences and stuff from the time just of what was going on in the area. Well, it turns out that the night before at 11 o'clock, so this was July July 16th at 11 o'clock at night, there were reports coming from not only the the NAF or the Nova Russian Armed Forces, as they were calling themselves at the time, but also in Western uh, newspapers that the, well, the, the side, the, the militia side, they were saying that they shot down uh, a Su-25, so a Ukrainian fighter jet. And in the months before that, they had shot down several Ukrainian um, flights, planes, and these were military planes, and they shot them down using surface-to-air missiles, like handheld surface-to-air missiles. And so they'd done, they'd shot down several of them. And um, so, of course, uh, Kiev, because this is kind of a humiliating thing to happen to them, you know, they didn't, they didn't publicize it a lot, but this one that happened on the 16th, they actually, they blamed Russia. They said Russia shot down one of our, one of our Su-25 fighter jets. And so when you, when you listen to to these guys talking what it from from what they're saying it sounds like they're looking for that jet because the the report had come come out of this town i can't remember uh, exactly what it was called how to pronounce it shiznui or something like that and that was the also that's a region that's a, a settlement or a town or village very close to where um where mh17 came down so that's where the initial report came out of that that there was this su-25 that was shot down in this region and so when they were there, they were looking for that jet that had been shot down. We got the jet. We got the yeah. jet. That's what they kept saying. So they thought that they'd found the jet that they'd shot down the night before, and but they're like, oh, it's on fire. Oh my god! And they, that's when they realized that this is a, this isn't the plane that they were looking for. This was a passenger jet that had been shot down. Newly, newly, yeah. yeah. So they were surprised 
it wasn't the moment when they realized they'd accidentally shot it down. It's the moment they realized that they weren't looking at the plane that they had shot down the night before. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it, but they took that transcript and just yeah. mangled it. And it's, and it's very specific. I mean, I don't know how anyone can uh, twist it around. <laughs> oh, it's easy. I, I mean, it's easy. I, I, I'll just, I'll just, you just read take it. off the brakes, Elon. You'll feel good. Show me the photo. Mohammed Jatri background. Okay, the commander. The other plane that fell down, they are after them, the pilots. The second one? Yes, there's two planes taken down. We need the second. The second one is civilian too. The fighter jet brought down this one, and our people brought down the fighter. They decided to do it this way to look like we have brought down the plane. I mean, how do you, how do you twist that without, you know? Omit it. Yeah. So there were several events going on because there had been, like I said, several planes shot down in the in the days and weeks beforehand, mm-hmm. and then there's this happened from from that from that part of the transcript. It sounds like they were very aware that there were jets in the air, mm-hmm. and because there have been reports from eyewitnesses not connected to the militias that they saw and heard fighter jets, two fighter jets. Yeah. And so it's very plausible that yes, one of the fighter jets was shot down by by DPR. We don't know because, and one of the reasons that we don't know, and it's kind of murky, I think, is that first of all, the Ukraine, Kiev wouldn't want, wouldn't like to admit these sort of things that they're losing so many planes because they lost several planes. And second, it it it's not, it doesn't look good even to the DPR from a PR perspective to to admit that they shot down this jet. It in the minds, uh, it would just give a lot of easy, um, you know, ample opportunity for doing exactly what these guys are doing in the, in the media now to say, oh, they accidentally shot down this, this other plane. When they were using um, technology and weapons that can only reach a certain, a certain height, so they couldn't have shot down the, the passenger jet with this, but they could have, they could have hit a fighter jet at, at the lower altitude. Well, the, the most telling thing to me was this was the comment, what is a civilian jet doing here? This is this is mm-hmm. this is a war a war zone. There shouldn't even be any overflights. It shouldn't even be happening. And you know, and then you go back to the mysterious air controller who mm-hmm. suddenly A didn't exist and then suddenly was on holiday who actually directed them directed that civilian flight over the area. Well even that statement is telling in a different way because apparently there were several um, passenger flights that were still using that as a flight corridor. At least that's what some of the news reports are coming out of the time were that that what it had, that that airspace hadn't been totally shut down. But what that what that says to me is for that for these guys to be saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean these planes are so far overhead and they they weren't even on these guys' radar so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so what's this passenger jet doing here? Well, that just says to me that this that this you know this plane was was. Or these planes in general, these passenger planes were so high up, you know, that they, they weren't even con- considered as as uh, anything to worry about. But then here, here it is. It's fallen down. It's it's crashed. It's been shot at. How did this happen? It's, it's the first response because because they the like I said, the weapons that they were using didn't have the, the capability of reaching those altitudes. So they were just shocked. And I think that maybe was maybe that's one of the reasons why that guy said that thing because it's not that there were no uh, passenger flights flying over. It's just that they, you know, they it wasn't, um, you know, they weren't flying at, at the same altitudes because these jets were constantly flying, but they were flying at low levels mm-hmm. to to uh, bomb the the cities. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. well, 
one of the other uh, stories of interest this week um, were the shootings in Chattanooga, uh, where an individual uh, who was identified as 24-year-old Mohammed Yusuf Abdulaziz um, apparently shot up two military facilities, uh, leaving four Marines dead in an act that's called domestic terrorism. Um, and it, it's come out, a couple of interesting things, um, was that his father had been investigated for, quote, possible ties to a foreign terrorist organization and added to a U.S. terrorist watch list. So uh, just funny how, you know, yet another um, suspected terrorist was on some intelligence agency's list or family member was on a list. And, uh, you know. Uh, so the FBI had been looking at these guys for years. Yeah. Years. I think okay. with these these watch lists, they're not actually watch lists. They're, they're, they're a list. list. Of, yeah, the Patsy list. The, the guys are either directly or indirectly under our control. So whenever they have one of these things, they just say, oh, this guy was on our watch list. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. And then the other dimension to this whole story, which should raise questions in, in the minds of anyone who has read about uh, the Fort Hood uh, shootings of a few years ago, um, was the fact that, you know, there's this uh, black Porsche or, or BMW that was also kind of um, suspected of being at the scene of these shootings and and that uh, several uh, tweeters thought might have had some participation. So, you know, and apparently this this young guy who everyone who knows him is like totally shocked that, that he would have done such a thing because he was a, a kind, sweet guy, according to people who knew him and went to school with him. Um, so, you know, just that other piece that there's this second possible uh, car involved when, when he had a, um, a silver Ford Mustang, this young guy. So just a couple of pieces to to question regarding this. Um, and I, I think you can almost just look at it. You don't even have to read the details of this article to know, yeah, this guy was, you know, if he was shooting up a military base, he was Islamic. If he was shooting up a church, he was a white extremist. Uh, you know, there's this pattern um, that's emerging that's been kind of shoved in our faces for a very long time. And um, it, it's it's so mechanical and it has such predictability in a way uh, and nothing is surprising anymore. So we'll probably hear a little bit more about that as, as the facts come uh, come up. I think that about wraps it up. I think so, too. Yep. So, yeah, thanks to everyone for listening to us rant about the things that us and get our blood pressure up. Yeah, thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it was somewhat entertaining at the same time, though, because... Uh, there's so much. But uh, for listening, everybody. Yeah, we'll talk to you all next week. Tune in tomorrow for the behind the headlines. I believe they're interviewing William Blum. William Blum. Yeah, that's gonna be a good one. So yeah. tune in. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.